I'm Richard, and welcome to Acetorque's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of November 18th, 2013. Join us this week as we visit with Jackie Miller, historian at the Parsonage of Sister Amy Semple McPherson, about the design and construction of the monumental Angelus Temple, which opened on New Year's Day 1923 at the north end of Echo Park. We'll also talk with Tom Rothman, senior city planner charged with revamping Los Angeles's nearly 70-year-old municipal zoning code for the needs of the 21st century. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to 5th and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So we did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine. This week is November 18th, 2013. Our guests this week are Tom Rothman. He is a senior city planner for the city of Los Angeles. And we'll also be speaking with Jackie Miller. Jackie is an historian and is in charge of tours of Sister Amy Semple McPherson's Parsonage on Echo Park, which is, of course, next door to Sister's beautiful Angelus Temple. So, Kim, before we get started with uh, our, our usual lineup of, of podcast introduction topics, I'm hoping you can remind people about the Pishka. Happy to do so, Richard. That would be the digital tip jar associated with this podcast. And if you enjoy it, which we certainly hope you do, we hope you'll consider throwing a little something digitally into our tip jar to help fund the uh, excursions that we make across the Southland looking for people to talk to for you to listen to. Not obligatory, but always appreciated. We appreciate your support and listenership. 
thoughts have wings. I have that in my, my calendar to say that every every six podcasts after the end of your Pishka pitch. You do? Thoughts have wings. Can you say Pishka pitch eight times fast? I can't. Kim, let's move on to the closely watched trains. We got a few okay, of them. Okay, we, we, we have yeah. to keep moving. Okay. okay, the first one, I just, this is really a bookmark. Uh, the first closely watched train is an interesting item about uh, the Bell manager, Rizzio, who. Um, in the course of some testimony last week, came out he was planning to build a giant super city in South Los Angeles County, consuming Bell and neighboring cities, kind of Maywood and so forth. Maywood, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, not obviously not too concerned about the particulars of this, as you can tell from my 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 discussion of this topic so and far. The fact that you think it's Rizzo and not Rizzo. Rizzo, right? <laughs> my interest in this. This is a bookmark. Uh, in the new year, we're going to be sitting down again with one of my favorite people, Tom Sitton. He is uh, curator emeritus at the Natural History Museum, and, and a much-anticipated interview I'm going to do with him is about the creation of Lakewood. And, and Lakewood is really important, and really important to Tom in his work for Volume 2 of a his, the History of the Los Angeles County Supervisors, 1950 to present. What Riz, Rizzo? Rizzo. Rizzo is seems to have been trying to do in what the four brilliant philanthropist moguls who built Lakewood did was that there, 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 are some, there are some charter, there are some parts of the Los Angeles County Charter which allowed for the creation of Lakewood, which Rizzo was looking to leverage to create this super city, for lack of a better word. And all that's so we're, we're going to get into all that with Tom. It's really interesting. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to give it away. But it's just um, the creation of these cities in South Los Angeles County in the 50s has to do with these, these interesting aspects of the charter, which some very intelligent people can, can use to the benefit of the city, or as we've seen in this testimony, some very intelligent, not terribly uh, philanthropic or empathic people could use perhaps to the detriment. There we go. Moving. So we're we're, we're going to move on. Kim, the yes. Wallace and F House in Beverly Hills. This is. Um, I'm going to let you talk about the notoriety of this house. Uh, the Beverly Hills municipal ordinance surrounding historic preservation seems to be working. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Uh, Beverly Hills finally recognized that it might be a good idea to have some way of, of stilling attempts to demolish historic properties. They've implemented this historic preservation plan, and the way that it works is demolitions are essentially just put on the pause button, and properties are examined, and it's determined if uh, one of the um, iconic architects that have been named as people who should always be considered um, if they built a property or they not necessarily worked on it. That was a problem with the Gershwin House. But if they built a property and the property is up for demolition, um, it'll go to review as a possible historic landmark. And that simply slows things down. I mean, all historic preservation ordinances in the world, except maybe in you know a great city like Venice, which recognizes that history is what it's got to show for itself. Um, historic preservation is only as strong as the ordinance. The ordinances really only allow for review. Um, it's always possible to tear something down if you really, really want to. But when you can stop and look and think about it, as is the case with this Neff house over on Linden, and it's, um, you know, it doesn't have an incredibly extraordinary pedigree. Um, it's Wallace Neff. It's an early Neff. It's Spanish Good. colonial revival. I know. It's a cool house. I haven't seen the interior. 
It, it hasn't been on the market in a number of years. Beautiful exterior. And of course, Linden is the site of the Benjamin, don't call him Bugsy, Siegel slaying. And also this house featured in Howard Hughes's extraordinary Beverly Hills plane crash um, as his experimental craft came to land it actually clipped the uh, bedroom of this house so some work was done in the 40s um the neat thing that happened is the the property was purchased for six plus million dollars in the spring the new owners immediately put up for demolition um permission it went into review and there was such an outcry the sign disappeared from the front of the house that said that demolition was in the works or an attempt was being made, and the, while the review was going on, quietly, this attempt to demolish the property was withdrawn. Um, we don't know if the new owners have decided that the best thing to do is to simply walk away from this and sell it, if they've decided they want to live with an old house, and, and maybe they've recognized that other people value what they purchased, intending to tear it down, or if they're just going to wait a while and try to demo it again. But, for now... That house is standing, and I think that's a really great thing. So here's to the city of Beverly Hills, and here's to people who are willing to reconsider. Thank you, Kim. Kim, I'm, we're sitting here at our living room table. As I look to the other end of the table, I, I see several very poorly behaved cats. I see about a week's, week's worth of newspapers. There's my bag, my keys, and there's a copy of 500 Days of Summer, the DVD. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we just wanted to confirm that that film is really is incredibly silly and and well, that's that's not why it's on our living room table. But it's, that's it's another not, story. It's another story. <laughs> yeah, well, we always joke about that film because the the, the the you know the lead character of that film is obsessed with his favorite architects in Los Angeles, Walker and Eisner. There ain't no such people. It's Walker and Eisen. But uh, the the interesting thing that's going on um, related to that film is that the CRA successor agency, which has been charged with taking all of these properties that have been held um, you know, in the public trust for all these years, has now had to determine what to do with Angel's Knoll. You want to talk about this a little bit, Richard? Well, just I, I just did a shout-out. Angel's Knoll is, is this parcel that the CRA successor agency is, is going to put on the market so it just that's interesting it's been uh, fenced off i guess about six weeks ago eight weeks ago right so uh, nobody can go and sit on that bench and you know replicate that scene from that movie about which, walker and eisner which we actually you know wrote an entire bus tour about not <laughs> it was a nice park though i mean because it was really it, it wild was, and it, it was the last real and the, the goats sense of bunker were there Hill. yeah now that the cra is gone they don't bring the fire goats in anymore um i, I have can I, I have little to say i just i just wanted to bring it up uh that parcel is is up for sale and i guess that means that um people that have been waiting for california plaza three i guess might might be reaching an important milestone in in that in that road we shall wait, and we shall see. We shall wait, and we shall and see. And look out for the goats, because I like them. Kim, I noticed that uh, last week there were some protests in front of the uh, the entrance, the, the pedestrian entrance to the Southwest Museum, that great Mayan entranceway. Yeah, um, Charles Fletcher Lummis's great Museum of the American Indian, which is the first museum of the city of Los Angeles. Um, you've seen it if you've driven the 110 freeway. It's it's off on the hills on the on Mount Washington side. An extraordinary collection of American Indian artifacts. It's been closed for a number of years. Uh, 
there's some earthquake issues, and then there was the merging of the Southwest with the Autry Museum, and um, a lot of people in the community feel that the Autry has given short shrift to Northeast LA and to the importance of the Southwest as an institution. Um, but because the merged institutions did take federal money, FEMA money, um, to do some renovations on the property. They do have to keep it open. Um, they're keeping it open for six hours a day on Saturdays now with a new exhibition on Puebla pottery. Um, it's wonderful. Puebla or Pueblo? Pueblo. Thank you, Pueblo. Uh, it's wonderful that it's open. It's impossible for us to visit because we're on the bus, but uh, the protest is because, you know, federal money really limited access. So the people in the community would like to see the Southwest open more. And I uh, can't disagree with that. I think a lot of people would like the, to see the, that. The, the, the protesters would like to see a lot of things changed about the Southwest Museum. And we're not, we're not, we're simply going to give a nod of the head to that, uh, what seems to be eternal struggle between the, the Autry and, and the neighborhood. And we'll keep you posted. Kim, Again, just another another uh, bookmark. Uh, I, I you you sent me a very interesting link. Um, a group in New York City in Greenwich Village sent out uh, put together a blog post about the problems of private entities, conservancies, running public parks, and this is a real issue. And this is going to segue into our our next closely watched train Pershing Square. So just just on general principle reminding everyone to remember Henry Hope Reed Jr. and uh, to look, look to New York as, as a city that is, has uh, grappled with problems we're about to run into. I'm going to pass this URL along to you about the problems of private entities taking charge of public spaces. And saying things like, musicians shouldn't be over by fountains. Fountains should be quiet places of reflection. Because we're the conservancy and we say so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole, it's, it's very complicated. Remember Henry Hope Reed, and in remember and Reed too. Oh yeah, God bless him. Yeah, they weren't related. New York is gone. Yeah, New York is gone, Kim. That's why we do this podcast every week in the hopes that Los. I, I will not be able to say that about Los Angeles in fifteen years. Um, Kim, next week they're going to start a series of meetings. Uh, no, this week. I'm sorry, it starts this week tomorrow. Tomorrow is the first of three meetings. We're going to the one next week. That's why I got confused. Um, Pershing Square, CD14, is uh, starting its own initiative to get feedback on Pershing Square. Uh, at the moment, there is no URL associated with these uh, series of meetings. I don't really understand how anyone could create a series of public events as a government entity for the public and not create a URL for them, but maybe that's just because I got a degree in computer science when Web 2.0 was invented, and my intrinsic concept of the internet is a canonical URL associated with each idea. In any event, as my wife holds her head in her hands and wishes that I would stop talking no, about I this. No, I wish they had a URL, because I've had to already send two updates to the people who've subscribed to the petition uh, to restore Pershing Square, because they changed two out of three of the meeting locations. So, this, is, this is a preface... Everything I'm about to tell you might be subject to change in terms of location and date, so keep 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 abreast of the link we, we're passing along. We'll try and keep it updated as best we can. So here's the meetings. First one is tomorrow. 
Uh, oh, tomorrow morning, very, or 7.30 in the morning at Perch, which is in the Pershing Square building. Wakey, Fifth wakey. Hill. Wake, wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. I didn't think they were open for breakfast. Uh, the next meeting is the 23rd, Saturday, in the Biltmore, 10.30 a.m. And the one we're going to go to is in the Pacific Room. I guess that's the, uh, is that the, is that the Pacific Mutual building? I'm sorry, I just have the address, 526 West 6th They just cha- okay, I think that's Pacific Mutual building. Uh, so that's at uh, 6 p.m. on Monday the 25th, and, and we'll be going to that one. Encourage you to, uh, to come on by, give comment. Um, yeah, this is a meeting about usages of, public, of Pershing Square, and... Um we put together a little cheat sheet on uh, things that you might use Pershing Square for if it were in its original 1910 um, coordination, which is a classic European-style park with benches and long pathways and a central fountain. So there's some really wonderful ways you can use a park like that. And, and so, Kim, segueing into our next watched train, John Parkinson, 1910. Of course, did this Pershing Square design, which we're we're really looking towards as our our star to steer by. Our friend Stephen Stephen G has started an Indiegogo campaign to fund the documentary associated with his brilliant book on John Parkinson. Actually, uh, I, to fund the completion because he um, the film is finished, but he oh, he needs yep, he needs yep. to pay for some of the incredible archival. Um, photographs and, and footage that he's acquired to fully illustrate the story of Parkinson in L.A. And if you've been following this podcast, you know how excited we are that Stephen has done this work because, as he noticed when he went to the L.A. Public Library to ask about this incredible architect who seemed to have built all of the truly iconic buildings in L.A. Not a- okay, not all, Kim, but well, like Union Walker, and, Walker and Eisner are important architects. Oh, yeah, but they're just, they make beautiful buildings, Parkinson made City Hall a Union Station. Well, anyway. Okay, so we're going to put the link. You can contribute a little bit to Stephen's project. If you do so, you could even get your name in the film or get a, a photographic print or a signed copy of the book. And uh, I, th- I think he's giving away T-shirts that say, I like John Parkinsoner, too. You're funny. It makes me want to go sit on a bench and get my picture taken. Let's move on. Okay. Kim, um... <laughs> Uh, tomorrow also, I don't know if we're going to make this meeting, but we're going to try it. Tomorrow is the first of a series of meetings called the Linkage Study through Metro. Uh, the Metro has a branch charged with improving connection for pedestrians and bicycles. I'm not going to worry about cyclists. Uh, improving connectivity between Union Station and the Civic Center. This is a very complicated way of saying... Um, Metro in its redesign of Union Station, which will happen in the next couple of which is happening now, the reformulation and the actual implementation will take place in a couple of years. Uh, as they rebuild and redesign Union Station, how to get get people out of Union Station and into the context of these important historic neighborhoods that, that exist immediately around it. And and that's a very important uh, topic. And I'm thinking gondolas. <laughs> okay, Kim, I'm actually just thinking getting some people on Metro to acknowledge that, you know, the Bella Union Hotel and the Baker Block existed and that there might be some importance and some context in talking about them and Fort Moore. Um, but I'm thinking steps. people strapping on those Google glasses and looking into Arcadia Bandini's world. From the parking lot of the hovercraft yes. area. Right. This okay. is going to be awesome. Okay, Kim. History so lives. Just... 
Go to the meeting. We're including a link for the online survey. Please take it. It's it's important. It's important that Metro get as, as much good feedback as they can about historic context for that neighborhood. It's 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 an important part of downtown and it's already heavily used and it looks like it's going to be a lot more with with the redesign of Pers- with the redesign of Union Station uh, of course designed by my favorite architect I- the iconic LA architect John Parkinsoner. <laughs> All right, Kim, let's just we have, we have one last one to go. Um who is that plumber who always had different names in his ads? You know who I'm thinking about. Kim, we yeah. uh one All last right. watch train and and This I- one makes me want to cry. This one doesn't. Dutton's Books Shop um, was a very important place for me growing up. Uh, I spent a great deal of time um, spending my parents' hard-earned money buying books, which they happily paid for. And uh, Dutton's closed what five, six years ago? Mm. Uh, In like two thousand eight. Okay, yeah. There was a situation where they, they were wooed by the city of Beverly Hills okay, to Kim, open a we're, branch, we're, and then Beverly Hills reneged on all of the promises about like free utilities. It was really weird, and okay. then they went out of business so, over so in Brentwood. Doug Dutton just got to the point where he couldn't run Dutton's in Brentwood anymore, and that's understandable. It's a very difficult endeavor. He did did it very well for decades. So it's been Dutton's has been closed seven years, six seven years. The Barry Building, the building it sits in, which is as I, which cannot be separated from Dutton's as an experience for the for the book for the reader. And if you've uh, never been there, please describe it. It's it's a very nice modern courtyard, late modern um, or six. It's even not modern. It's it's I mean it's it's sixties, so it's it's almost it's fifties. Is it late fifties? Yeah, I mean it's got it's got it's, lovely shaded areas. It's between and... modern and brutalism. You know, it's pillow taste. It's got these great open stairways, central courtyard, great trees. Um, really, really very subtle international style, almost getting into these, almost getting into just sheets of concrete as as as, as texture and, and definition. Very nice building. And Although apparently quite run down these days. Haven't been over there. It has just been announced. Okay, the the the, uh, the demolition permit, I guess, was 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 rescinded. I don't think he actually had a permit, but he had a plan. Charlie, there Munger. was a plan, right? There was a, a something something came out of building and safety that indicated to the neighborhood council in Brentwood that that plans to demolish the building had been reconsidered and it was no longer that was no longer on the table. So that was a cause for rejoice, and we just wanted to pass it along because. Dutton's bookshop is very, very important to us over here. And um, while the West, while Brentwood seems like another country <laughs> to us, it, it is still within the municipality of Los Angeles. And, and we, we don't talk about the West Side much, do we? You know, I was having lunch with my mother a year ago in Century City, and she looked at me and she said, What did West Los Angeles ever do to you? Can we put that on a t shirt? I like and, that. And with that, we're going to end closely watched trains. So I want to thank everyone for um, letting us get through these. We'll have we'll have a whole new set of problems to deal with next week. Kim, I want to quickly get through some events before we get to our interviews. Okay. Well, I see. First on the list is your. You want people to subscribe to my novel, and this, I do too. This, this is not an event per se, but it is. It is. Well, a, it's a window of opportunity. Paramount importance. Um, my novel, The Kept Girl, a novel of 1929 Los Angeles, fact-based, starring the young Raymond Chandler, is 
loyal and feisty Secretary Muriel and the uh, idealistic L.A. cop who may well be the real-life model for Philip Marlowe, uh, all in pursuit of a murderous cult of angel worshippers, is coming out. And we are uh, launching our press, Esoteric Inc. This is a real press. This is not print-on-demand. And you can be yeah, part... It's a real press. You can be part of the magic, which is to say... It's, it's a real press, and I'm cleaning out the garage to prove it. Yeah, thank you. There will be shelving. <laughs> um, and we are working with the oldest family-owned printers left in Southern California, or at least in L.A. In L.A. Uh, in LA. Um, there's going to be a very special edition. It's a subscriber's edition, which means the subscribers' names will be in every copy of the book. Their copies will have a really beautiful um, decorative uh, slipcase and I, I think we're calling it with the, the, the term the printer's please using. don't use that term okay we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're using some shorthand over at the print shop which is it's kind of 80s and i don't want to use it <laughs> publicly um, <laughs> and uh all of the subscribers will also be invited to a very special subscribers appreciation party which will be a celebration of the real lore behind this book and uh, we're super super excited and we want you to be a part of it these subscriptions are open through christmas $65 includes the special edition and the party and an ebook and your name in the book and your being uh, well you, you'll get what they call a um, association copy if you're into book collecting at all association copies get valuable so all of the subscribers copies are you know going to be collector's editions so maybe you'd like to be part of it 65 bucks we hope you'll think about it they also make good gifts and if you make it a gift we'll send out a cute little keepsake that you can leave under the tree for your sweetie so that's what i have to say about the kept girl www.thekeptgirl.com is the website thanks kim we'll link to that okay kim uh just very quickly because i want to get to the interviews um our, our monthly salon is coming up uh, next week, uh, Sunday, the 24th of November. Christina Rice will be talking about Anne Dvorak, the great film starlet. Uh, Pepper, Pepper Arvold, thank you, I always get hung up on the double A in her last name, thank you. Pepper Arvold will be talking about her grandmother Lillian Hunt. Lillian Hunt, of course, was the manager of the Follies and later the New Follies Theater, otherwise what people might remember is the Burbank. Pepper grew up in a burlesque house. On Main Street. On Main in Street. Los in downtown Los Angeles in the 1950s. Oh, my God. And I'm so excited. So, I mean, we've talked to Pepper about this, but we've never heard her give a, a public well, presentation because she's never given one talked, before. We've talked to Pepper about this at length. Yeah. I, I don't want people to think this is new to us. No, but. no, no. But this is, this is her opportunity to figure out how she wants to... Share this story with the world, we're, we're and we're ho- very excited. We're hoping that, like many lava presentations, this is the the seedbed for uh, a written document. You mean a book? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think so. Yeah. So, so please get excited and get down for that. Immediately after that will be the final installment of what has been a a five month saga, the Broadway on My Mind tour series, underneath the banner of my Flanner and the City Walking tour series. Poem Noir is the theme for our final installment for the end of the year. We're going to go walk, leave Figaro immediately for the Bradbury. We're going to have uh, a series of poems in the Poem Noir school throughout the tour. We're going to be in the Bradbury Grand Central Angel's Flight. We're going to talk about the history of Angel's Flight, film noir, uh, the history of Third and Broadway. We're going to have a lot of public policy, a lot of history, a lot of poetry, it's going to be great. I'm and it's free. S- and it's free. As so is the salon. Please get to those. Okay. Kim, let's get to these interviews. 
please. Okay. Please. So my first interview will be with Tom Rothman, senior city planner for the city of Los Angeles. And since I'm going to interview him first, I will introduce our second interview first. Our second interview will be with Jackie Miller. She is one of my favorite people in the entire world. She is an historian, and she is in charge of interpretation. She's 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 like takes you through the parsonage, which is Sister Amy Semple McPherson's uh, headquarters, which which she built uh, concurrently with the temple. Her uh, house museum is yeah, what it is. It's, it's a house museum now. Uh, it was her her headquarters, and Jackie's the best. So we're just going to get some really wonderful anecdotes about the building of Angela's Temple in 23, and some early early stories about Sister and and her preaching in this 5,000 plus auditorium. This interview is meant to get the beats, the feel of the early days, because I have a la- another interview we'll publish early next year about Sister, the, the mature Sister Amy Semple McPherson as a, as a preacher in her 5,000 plus auditorium with um, what would be her, her illustrated sermons which Charlie Chaplin helped her with. So that will be, this, this is meant to really, again, be a seedbed for her, her later mature work. And anyone who's interested in Echo Park and how that neighborhood developed really has to look at Sister. You don't have to be interested in early Christian activity in Southern California to just find her a fascinating figure. She is. And her house? Go and visit, because she might have the most beautiful bathroom in Los Angeles. I, uh, well, I've seen the Villa Aurora bathrooms now, and and it, it, it's it's it, they're they're both really close. They're 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 both really. I'm voting for sister. Okay. Thank you. So that'll be our our last interview. So we'll start with Tom Rothman. Tom Rothman is a senior city planner. His division in the Los Angeles City Department of Planning has been charged with the revamp of the zoning code of Los Angeles. This is a watershed event in the city. For pu- this is a watershed event for public policy in Los Angeles. And he does a great job in about 15 minutes of explaining uh, the motivations for revamping the zoning code and the goals in revamping the zoning code. It's a great interview. It's a great start of what I hope will be a series of great interviews with him on zoning and public policy. And so let's take it away with my interview with Tom. Here with you, I'm here in uh, uh, I'm here in City Planning Room Seven Zero One in City Hall, and Tom, I'd like for you to introduce yourself before we get started. Certainly, uh, my name is Tom Rothman, and I'm a senior city planner with the uh, Los Angeles Department of City Planning, and I supervise the Code Studies section. And uh, we have historically been chartered with uh, writing the city's zoning code. Perfect. Okay, so Tom, we've got we've got some heavy lifting to do. In the next 15 minutes, you're going to take us through um, the task your department has been given, which is revamping the zoning code. But before we do that, I want to just um, start with everyone so everyone understands what what it is we're talking about. So um, there are actually two documents that control zoning in Los Angeles. So why don't you start with chapter one of the municipal code and then uh, explain what the general planning framework is and I think at that point we'll be able we ready to roll up our sleeves and jump into the work at hand which is on your desk every day. Uh, you're exactly right there are two essentially 
Um, of course, in Los Angeles, we always have to caveat things with almost and most of the time and sometimes. But for, for purposes of this interview, there are two documents that guide zoning in the city of Los Angeles. And one, as you mentioned, is Chapter 1 of the city's municipal code. That's the zoning code. So zoning code is one book out of 19 chapters of the L.A. Municipal Code. And that code, the whole code, talks about everything that um, relates to the government of Los Angeles. So number one, chapter one, is all about the zoning. Um, and the other document that guides uh, zoning in the city is the city's general plan that we are mandated to have by the state of California. And, the, and that general plan also has many chapters in it. Uh, they're called elements, and they have uh, sections, elements like housing and transportation and noise and safety, seven, eight, nine different elements. And one of those elements is the land use element. The land use element is comprised of our community plans. So the city of Los Angeles has 35 community plans that make up the land use element of the general plan, which is how the zoning in the zoning code gets placed on the ground. Perfect, perfect. At this point, I'm gonna ask you to explain what a Euclidean zone is, because this, this will help us understand what is, when, when we get to your work at hand now, this will help us. So what is a Euclidean zone? Okay, yeah, I know I threw out a lot of information just then. Uh, a Euclidean zone or a Euclidean zoning code is a type of zoning code. Um, it's very popular in the country, in, in the United States, and uh, the term Euclidean is actually not uh, based on the uh, mathematician, but it's actually named after the town of Euclid, Ohio, which in 1926 won a lawsuit that said they are allowed to zone and, and put different land uses in different places. So, for instance, you can put the residential in one part of town, you can put the commercial in another, and the industrial in yet another. So they basically broke up land uses, and that was determined to be legal by the Euclidean lawsuit. So that is called Euclidean zoning. There are other types of zoning, but that's the one that Los Angeles adopted back in the 40s. Perfect. So you just mentioned a decade, the 40s. Let's get more specific. Why don't you um, tell us why 1946 is a milestone for, for zoning in Los Angeles is important. In 1946, uh, or I should say prior to 1946, we did not have a chapter one of the municipal code. We had one large book of the municipal code, one very large. What had happened was, there, and there were zoning laws already in place in Los Angeles. Our zoning went back to the very early 1900s. In fact, back to 1904, we had started with our zoning. But we didn't have a specific place for them. There wasn't one box. They were just being scattered haphazardly, I would say, throughout the, throughout the municipal code. So in 1946, the city planning department took charge and compiled all of these random ordinances and put them into one book the zoning code, and that's what started the zoning code of Los Angeles, and that is essentially the same book that we are working with today in 2013. It's just grown a lot. Um, approximately how many pages is chapter one the, the, of the zoning? It's over 800 pages. <laughs> it started out in 1946 as a very small pamphlet, 
Um, and uh, if you could go to our website at rico.la or the planning department's website, you could see a picture of what it looked like in 1946 and what it looks like today. Okay, perfect. All right, so now we're going to we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to get down to what it is you guys are doing in your office today. So you, your office has been charged. You've been charged with revamping the zoning code, which basically took the shape it did, its final shape in, in 1946. The motivation, and let me just get us started, and then you can just take this away, but the motivation for revamping the zoning code is there's several. It's obsolete. Obviously, 1946 is a long time ago. It's old-fashioned, and it does not complement the general planning framework, which, which you just explained to us. So given what I've just put on the table, why don't you try in the next five minutes to explain the goals in in, in revamping the zoning code. And let me, I'm sorry, let me help you one more because we talked about this before. The Euclidean paradigm doesn't work. You're, you're, you're getting away from the Euclidean paradigm in this rewriting. You're, you're, you're moving toward paradigms like transit-oriented and, and pedestrian use. So I think I've, 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 I've tur we've turned on the headlights. We can see about as far as we can see with those ideas. Take us, take us through what it is you're doing in a little more detail. Well... Uh, there's a lot of topics there. I guess I'll start first with the, uh, the Euclidean aspect of why we want to change the zoning code. So, um, as I just said, in 1946, we compiled all these ordinances, and it was based on the idea that we should live in one area of the city, um, shop in one, work in a different, in a different area of the city. That's, that's the separation of land uses. Uh, we now live in a very different city than... 1946, obviously, that was coming out of World War II, a very suburban model. Los Angeles was still a, a fairly suburban city, and that's the uh, that was the American dream. Um, and we have moved past that now. We are we are really beefing up our transit. Uh, we have um, we have really hit the wall with our with our density. So now we are working on building urban infill projects. That the separation of uses just doesn't come to play anymore when we want to have a transit rich pedestrian-friendly city. So this separation of land uses is, is not um, the type of tools we need to implement a 21st century Los Angeles that has actually been adopted as policy in the general plan framework. Now, our framework that was adopted back in the 90s was a very progressive document about where we saw Los Angeles going in the 21st century, where we would have regional hubs and transit-rich corridors and lots of uh, pedestrian activity. Uh, that's a great policy, and we are trying to implement those the best we can. The problem is our toolbox, which is the zoning code that was originally devised in 1946 and a little bit prior, still has those old tools in it. We can only do so much with that toolkit. So we're trying to implement a, a progressive, modern policy with an old-fashioned toolbox. Perfect. Um, I'm wondering if you can just... I'm wondering, uh, what would Calvin Hamilton say? Calvin Hamilton, the principal city planner in the 1960s, what would, what would Calvin Hamilton say about what you're doing? I don't, didn't know Calvin too well, but um, I, I'm sure he would uh, champion our cause to realize that uh, the code needs some work. And uh, in addition to the change of thought that's going into the zoning code, we also want to, it, it's, 
it's gotten to the point of adding things to the zoning code where it's just become unwieldy regardless of where we want to go. Even if we wanted to stay with this old-fashioned type of zoning code, we have added so much to this poor book over the last 60, 70 years that um, so many things have changed that we've added to it. We have sign ordinances. We have um, group homes. We have um, state laws. We now have a subdivision map act that wasn't around then. We have so many things that we've added to that, um, and it, it's just uh, it's quite confusing to any layman and, and to any professional, to tell you the truth. So as we muddle through all of these processes, we really need to fix up and clean it up once and for all. There's so many processes now. We have over 70 different processes to get things approved in the city of Los Angeles. They're all necessary. We did our best as we went along. Nobody created these things to um, stifle uh, development or to confuse people, but things happen in 70 years, and um, we need to start. We need to step back and look at the whole thing comprehensively, which has never been done. I'm very excited. I want to thank you. You did a great job. Thank you for talking about Calvin Hamilton. I like people to remember Calvin because he he put out some ideas there in six in 61, 62, 63. Centropolis. This is really. This is really someone standing up and saying we need to think about this differently. So, so thank you for, for letting me toss you that, that bone unannounced. I, I, I really like Calvin Hamilton. So, Tom, I want to thank you, and I want to have you back. Uh, thank you, and anytime. My name is Jory Johnson. I'm in the Sacred Street Structure on Skid Row, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Jackie. Jackie, we're here with you at Sister Amy Semple McPherson's Parsonage on Echo Park Lake. And there's a new plaque up to Sister in the newly opened park. We'll, we'll, as we wrap up, we'll touch on that. Jackie, we've interviewed you before. You're, you're a diamond. You're one of my favorite people. I want you to introduce yourself, first of all, and, and your role here at the Parsonage. And then we'll, we'll jump into the work at hand. I'm Jackie Miller, and I am the docent at the home of Amy Simple McPherson, located at 1801 Park Avenue, the corner of Lemoyne and Park, and it is a delightful place to be at. Wonderful. Thank you. So today we're not going to talk about the parsonage, but the building next door, which is the Angelus Temple, which Sister Sister built, and it opened on uh, New Year's Day, 1923. And since this is an interview with you, I'm going to stop talking about the temple and let you. So why don't you, to get us started, why don't you just bring us, give us some major milestones. Sister coming to Los Angeles, the, the dream, it becoming reality, and, and just what, what happened in and around this beautiful this beautiful church. Amy Semple was born in Canada in 1890, and at the age of 17, she married a young man by the name of Robert Semple. She was actually Amy Kennedy, and she married a young man whose desire was to go to Hong Kong, which they did in 1908, arriving there in 1910. Robert Semple died shortly after they arrived there from malaria. A month later, she had a beautiful daughter born and uh, was advised not to stay there because the baby probably would not survive. 
her not knowing the language, not happy with the uh, surroundings. So she returned to America and then on to Canada. Uh, Shortly after that, in 1912, she married a gentleman by the name of Harold McPherson, knowing full well that there was a call of God on her life. And uh, 1913, she had a son, Rolf, and then 1914-1915, they went out on the evangelistic field. Now, Harold McPherson did not have a call to be an evangelist or to preach the gospel like Sister did, but he nevertheless said he would stand behind her, would not stand in her way. However, in 1917, he became discouraged with being the gopher man or the gopher boy, and he left her with two children. That didn't deter her from doing what God had called her to do. However, she went up from New England to Florida, from Florida back to New England, preaching the gospel. 19, um, close to 1918, she felt the call that God was calling her to come to California. So she started on her journey across the country with two children and another secretary or such, $100 in her pocket and a tambourine. And as she came across, she did revival meetings, and she arrived in Los Angeles in 1918. And no place to go, but she lived across the street from what is now her parsonage and Angel's Temple, and uh, a little tiny bungalow, she called it, and she was there for a short time, and then she was given up a lot of land where they built her house that she called the house that God built. That was not there for very long either because she ended up building a parsonage, which she was terming it to be a Bible institute, but it didn't work out because there was two people. The temple is now being built. It's 1921. And uh, she moves into the, so was it to be called, a Bible college. And she moved in here. The college opened in the 500 room of Angelus Temple, which was pretty much completed. 1923, January 1, she opened the temple at 2.30 in the afternoon. However, in the morning before she opened the temple, for the public, she entered what we know as the Pasadena Rose Parade, and she entered a float that looked just like the temple. She had overseen the building of it, or the designing of it, and now she won second prize. That afternoon, she opened the temple, 1923, January 1 to 30, and there were people everywhere. So that was only the beginning of 22, 23 years that God would give her to preach the gospel from the temple. And okay, let's stop because you're, you're, you're moving very, this is fantastic, you're moving very quickly. Let's just take a breath and catch up. So we're here at on Echo Park at Lemoyne, and you've just described this incredible building campaign. The parsonage itself is this beautiful Georgian structure. And Angela's Temple, which, which opened New Year's Day, 1923, is, is this beautiful, classical, cur- it's, it's curved. It's, 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 like, it's, like a Roman, it's like a Roman temple. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. Uh, do, you, do you quickly just want to give us, uh, it's a podcast, so we can't go into the temple and show people. Would you just quickly describe on opening day 
give us give us the capacity of the church. It's very large at the time. Give us the capacity and give us a sense of what those services at 2.30 p.m. on New Year's Day would have been like as she returned triumphant from Pasadena. And and people can meditate on what, what surface street she took from Pasadena to Echo Park, which is which is a good meditation. Uh, 2.30 in the afternoon when she would have opened, there was two balconies and the main floor, which would have seated 5,300 people. However, there were many more than 5,300 people. The fire department was on hand just in case that things went wrong. Now, to arrive in the temple, you could go inside doors or you could go in through a balcony, which would have um, ramps down to the main floor and to the platform. Uh, the ramps... Okay. The ramps uh, was what Sister would have walked in through on the side door, down the ramp carrying a beautiful bouquet of roses. That was her trademark, a gorgeous bouquet of roses. And, of course, when she arrived on the platform, the people would just go crazy. I mean, you would have thought a movie star had arrived. But she would always say, to God be the glory. You know, it was all to God. Uh, she also had a band by now. She had an orchestra, and the music was amazing. And the first song that was sung was Open the Gates of the Temple. To my knowledge, she did not write that. That was an old, old church, uh, of the, I mean, old, old hymn of the church. So she would not have written that. But that was the first song that was sung at 2.30 on January 1, 1923. Packed to capacity. Uh, at that time, to my thinking, she was not doing anything elaborate as far as uh, her illustrated sermons or anything that would have been outlandish. She had just arrived from the parade. Now she's opening the temple. But that was the beginning of 21 years of ministry in Angela's Temple. Three services a day. She preached sometimes 21 times a week. Uh, not all in the temple, but the 500 room, uh, doing revival meetings. Uh, 1925, she built the school that was included in her teaching and all. So uh, the opening day would have been one glorious day of, of people, excitement. Something new has come to Los Angeles. Streetcars would have been running, and uh, it was just one of those days that people clamored to be here and wanted to be part of it. Wonderful. That's fantastic. You've painted a wonderful picture. I want you, because not everyone listening remembers her in their lifetime, I, I need you to explain to us that Sister was really a force to be reckoned with in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a church, 5,000 plus seats, people spilling out into the overflows. People moved to Los Angeles to be closer to Sister. I want you just to spend a minute or two trying to explain the people, the charisma of, of this, this woman who came here in 1918 with, with probably less than $100 in her pocket by the time she got across the country and fi- had, underwent a major fiscal campaign to build these two structures, the church and the parsonage, really monuments of monumental pieces of architecture in the city at the time. Give us just a sense of, of what people were drawn to when they came here. She, she was not, not a, not a tall, large woman. She was a, a, a little woman with, with, great, with great soul. 
Uh, sister was five foot three and a half, 118, 120 pounds perhaps. Every inch was dynamite. Every inch was enthusiasm for Jesus. Uh, along with the ramp in the temple and all, she had the beautiful stained glass windows that would have, and sister designed those also, and they would have added to any type of a service, any t- type of excitement that you would have wanted to know. Sister was a movie star in her own right, and Hollywood would have taken her on a nose. That's the reason Hollywood was so attractive to this woman with all this glamour and with all this enthusiasm, all this dramatics and what have you. And uh, she attracted the Hollywood people. They loved her. They thought she was the greatest thing ever. She would have been better than any Marilyn Monroe or any other starlet that you could think about because that's who she was. But let's 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 hold off on the movie stars because I want to talk about that exclusively. Okay. Um let's 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 let, I want to talk about that another time. But um I want you to tell us um in addition to this woman who comes in really very much creates a church of her own, her own following. In, in a very traditional way, just by speaking, the, the limited amplification. But I want she took it to the next level. She was a visionary because sister that installs a radio station here with with a radio antenna. Do you want to tell us about um, Call Four Square Gospel, mm-hmm. K uh, F S G, and and tell us a little bit about? I believe she was the the, the second female. The second woman to own a radio station, or maybe uh, thir- third? Okay, but the, first she, yeah, first in Los Angeles. So give us a little bit on her radio station, which was really revolutionary for her time. When Sister opened the temple, she did not have any type of uh, public address system. Therefore, if you were to visit the temple, you would have to notice the contour of it. And it was built, I say, like a piece of pie or a megaphone because she stood in the middle of the platform and the person sitting in the second balcony in the furthest corner could have heard her speak. And that's how powerful her voice was. And the acoustics, which she somehow had the brilliancy to make sure that they were there and adjusted right for her voice. 1924, it came about... Back up a minute. In Fresno, California, she was asked to deliver a message over a radio station. And she was quite intrigued to think that it would amplify and go out so brilliantly. So in 1924, she bought a radio station, which she appropriately named KFSG, Call for Square. And uh, she was amazed to think that instead of 5,300 people she could speak to, 50,000 people could hear her at once. It was such a powerful station and frequency that you could hear her in New Zealand at that time. Recently, I've read magazines where these people all over the world heard her and responded to her from Australia and, like I say, New Zealand and Africa and all. And they were amazed that they heard this powerful woman who they had just heard about over the frequency of the radio station. And so that was her voice to the world, and all. And sorry to say that 2001, we sold that radio station, and it's gone, you know. But that was her voice to the world, you know, and lots of lots of 
uh, time was saved because she could speak from the platform and the radio station 24-7. And, and the, the radio transmitter was, was on the, the roof yeah, of this, uh, this giant double tower sat atop the roof. There are photos here. Okay, I think you've done a wonderful job of bringing us up to speed on this important landmark in the city of Los Angeles. As, as I always ask you when, when we wrap up an interview with you, I want you to share a story with us about Sister that people probably haven't heard. Give us, Jackie, you're here all the time. You, you're, you're, you're communing with her all the time. I want you just, just to think about a, a story that, that it's just really going to show people a side of Sister they may, might not have thought she had. Sister had quite a sense of humor, which most people wouldn't even think of a woman of her giganticness, I guess. Uh, she did have a pet parrot that she would take to church sometimes with her and sit it on a little stand behind her. Sister's message consisted of hellfire and brimstone, repent or you're going to go to hell. And her enthusiasm and excitement preaching, she would forget to mention that repent or you're going to go to hell. So she's preaching along with her excitement and all of a sudden, this parrot comes out, repent or you're going to go to hell, repent or you're going to go to hell. And sister would turn around and agree with him, and she'd go on about her preaching and her excitement and such, and pretty soon he came back at her again, and she'd turn around and acknowledge him. He was always reminding her that repent, you're going to go to hell, was the theme of what she was supposed to be doing. Jackie, that's that's a wonderful story, and people that have heard our two podcasts at Sisters Castle in Lake Elsinore will remember that the parrot is immortalized in in the interior courtyard atrium. Is it? I did not know that. I can't get back out there. Yeah, at Lake Elsinore is great. That, that, that castle is fantastic. Jackie, that was wonderful. You've done a great job telling, giving us some insight into this fundamental Angelino. And, and I want to thank you for talking to us. I could tell you the Ku Klux Klan story. Have you heard that? Go. Sister never meant to insult anybody ever. She did not want you to feel unwelcome. And this particular Sunday night, 200 Ku Klux Klan came in dressed in their white attire, their robes and all. She always had 200 seats available for visitors, and they filled up very quickly with these 200 Ku Klux Klan. Sister got up, and she said, people come to church for different reasons, never to slander anyone. They come uh, to sing the beautiful hymns, or they come to maybe visit with people, or they come to hear a message, but everybody comes for a reason. Uh, most of us should come to hear about Jesus. Well, one by one, the clansmen got up and disappeared, and now there's 200 seats that are empty, right? And she just went on with her message that, you know, we all need to have the same mind when we come to church and all. And next thing you know, little by little, the seats filled up again, and she thought, okay, people have been coming to church. The next morning, after a Sunday night service, they, we have what we call Newspaper Alley between the Parsonage and the Bible College building, and they went out, and there was the Klansman's white 
uniforms all laying there. They had come out and disrobed and came back into church. But she never embarrassed them or called them out by name. They just felt a little convicted or a little out of place in what she said, you know, and they disappeared and came back and sat down in their suits. That's, Jackie, you, you never disappoint. That's a fantastic story. You, you do, Sister Proud. You do, Sister Proud. I want to thank you for talking to us, and we'll come back and talk to you again. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. I'm always delighted to see you, Richard, and to spend time with you. My name is Tom Sitton, and I'm at the Los Angeles Athletic Club, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of November 18th, 2013. Our guests this week were Tom Rothman, Senior City Planner for the City of Los Angeles, and Jackie Miller. She is the historian attached to the parsonage of Sister Amy Semple McPherson, and she's also their uh, chief interpreter. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen and We want you to know, we want to hear from you. We love feedback. So, Kim, please quickly let people know how they can can contact us and give us feedback. There are so many ways, but the simplest is probably just to send us an email at youcan'teatthesunshine at gmail.com. You can also go through the contact link at esotoric.com. You can come to one of the Esoteric Bus Adventures or one of the free lava events and let us know what you think. It's great to hear from podcast listeners. So... Stay in touch. What, what, what about iTunes? Oh, uh, yeah. Hey, we got, we got, we got you, another you, you review ne- on the iTunes. You never remember iTunes. I know, but, but if is, you're... Is this part of your shtick? No, it's just that I'm so annoyed with the new version of iTunes, which I accidentally downloaded. It took me three hours to figure out how to sync my podcasts again, just so that when we walk on the hill, I can actually, you know, zone out. Uh, redesigns are bad. But if you're using iTunes and you figured out how to use iTunes, um, you can go to the page associated with You Can't Eat the Sunshine and give us a little, you know, one-sentence review or or click some stars, uh, I think, from one to five. It helps a lot in terms of people finding us, and you can also see what other podcast listeners are listening to. So thanks for doing so. Thank you, Kim. All right, Kim, let's just, uh, this is when we we do, we look ahead to some upcoming bus tours because that's... You know, one of the things we do is, is get on the bus, and it, it's, it's nice to have people on the bus, and we do that. I can Lots totally do this. And, and, you know, it's actually the coffee tastes better the more people are on the bus. The closer we are to uh-huh. 55 people on the bus, the better the coffee tastes. Do you tastes. make more coffee? No. You make less? I don't make less. It's this, I make the same amount, but it tastes better. Okay, well, then maybe we'll see you on the bus. We've got Weird West Adams in our Crime Bus Tour series on November 23rd, an exploration of the vast plains of Id uh, to the west of downtown Los Angeles and south of the 10. There's some really beautiful neighborhoods and some really horrible and weird stories that we will be sharing. We'd love to see you there. On November 30th, it is Richard's once-a-year birthday bus excursion for $47, which is less than the usual cost of admission for one of our tours. You can actually spend more time with us on an exploration out into the Antelope Valley. There'll be cake, there'll be nature, there'll be museums and Indian artifacts and uh, historic hotels and lots of surprises, including Richard's newly digitized digitized 
student films from NYU, and we're we're looking forward to sharing those with all of you. I, I was uh, um, uh, st- I was enrolled in Tisch School of the Arts at New York University in September of 1986, and I managed to stay there about half a semester. I used to get into fights with nincompoop teachers too, but I didn't get thrown out of school. Um, I didn't get thrown out of school. It was just decided that maybe Tisch was not the best college for me, and happily there there were women in my life who were closely associated with the Washington Square College, which is where the art history department was, that um, that, that made it very simple for me simply to, to transfer my interests to that college, which, which of course set the stage for, for us being together in the art history department at Santa Cruz. So it had to happen. <laughs> Perhaps Richard will even tell you about how he got arrested on the subway for drawing uh, cartoons of Ubu. Also coming up in December, we have a couple of more crime bus tours, Main Street Vice and Hotel Horrors. Wait, I got that all screwed up. Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice. That's our downtown double feature celebrating the great lost entertainment zones that were. Main Street used to be a place of... Ah, great delight and horror. (laughs) And, of course, people got murdered in those hotels and got into all kinds of trouble in them, so we'll be sharing those stories. And our last tour of the year is Pasadena Confidential with Crime Bow the Clown. That's December 14th. That is a tour about um, rocket science, black magic, family murder, wealthy people keeping completely inappropriate pets, uh, suicides off of the bridge of course and other fun and of course crime bow the clown will be there if you want to get a christmas photo with crime bow it's your chance and of course (laughs) uh, in december we'll be talking about this later but our last sunday salon of the year um in the spirit of black magic practicing rocket scientists uh you can see it on the lava calendar we are going to be having a visit from the uh, local branch of the oto which was the religious order that jack parsons the great rocket scientist of pasadena who is featured on the tour um used to run in southern california and we're going to be having a gnostic mass so if you've ever wondered about stop stop we're as in you and I are not hosting hosting a Gnostic Mass. The Star Sapphire Lodge will be performing a Gnostic Mass at the end of our December Lava Salon. And I will point out, because I only found this out from from Suzanne and Craig the end of the other day, Jack Parsons' Agape Lodge in Pasadena, 38 to 47, that was the only functioning OTO Lodge outside of, of, of London, where Crowley, Crowley was living. I, I had no idea. That's fascinating. Thank you for clarifying. Um, so that's the end of December. We start the year, of course, with our Real Black Dahlia tour. It's our most popular tour, and that January tour, which is we give as close as possible to the time of her kidnapping and the discovery of her body, Beth Short's body, um, it's always extremely intense and powerful to give that tour, to walk in Beth Short's footsteps at the same time of year that she vanished. So... Um, if you've been wanting to get on that bus, it's a good one to come on. It, it always has a very special resonance for us. Um, Richard, why and, don't you give and, us... Well, and I'm going to wrap up the rest of the yeah, month. And yeah. also remind you, if you get on the, the Dahlia tour on, on January 4, you, of course, can, in, in, in addition to honoring Beth Shirt's memory by getting on the tour and, and having you know, a cup of tea in the rendezvous court, which is now the former lobby of the Biltmore Hotel, where she spent some of her last hours known to the world... Uh, you can then run the Rock and Roll Half Marathon at 7 o'clock at night 
which is which is a great way to honor Beth Short. Oh boy. <laughs> Honey, <laughs> okay, so. I'm, I'm sorry about the street closures. I'm sorry. It's hard to run a bus company in a city that likes to shut half of itself down. January 11th, we have my Raymond Chandler tour, and that's just a, that's a great tour. Uh, downtown, Hollywood, life before he became a short story writer and a novelist, his life as a screenwriter, and really, uh, on on the on the drive back from Hollywood to downtown, the the unraveling of of his life, uh, in, in in the depths of alcoholism and isolation between London and La Jolla. And I thought that I would have the Kept Girl novel ready for this tour, oh. but I think it's going to be no, no, I think it's going to be for the next tour. There, there's always another Chandler tour, Kim. Yeah. Um, people can still buy advanced copies, though. Of course they can. Yeah. You can subscribe to the special edition through Christmas, or, you know, after that you can just get the paperback. Okay, so January 18th is my Charles Bukowski tour. We just um, we just did that the other week. It's so much fun. We just have, again, downtown Hollywood. Uh, it, it's all the same. I know, it's all the same. Layers. It's it, the, it, when, Once you start abstracting it, it's all the same. Anonymity in downtown Fame in Hollywood, Chandler Bukowski. It's the and then you retire thing. to the beach. And then and then you retire to the beach. I know. The twenty fifth, Birth of Noir. That's my my tour about James M. Kane in Los Angeles and how he inspired the genre film noir and double indemnity, postman, the whole whole gamut. Really, uh, compliment to the Chandler tour for his screenwriting career. So that's it. I, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La, 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood called Hermina between us.